today on Ag News Daily. You know, we're countercyclical to the to the cycles for corn and soybeans. So we harvest in the spring and plant in the fall, right? The exact opposite. So we'll be we have um, we have our largest crop in the ground right now. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Happy Wednesday here on the Agnes Daily Podcast. Delaney Howell joined by Ashton Carr. And Ashton, I'm quite tired today. I'm ready for a little nap. I wish I could take one. I know I am ready for a nap too. Just got back to Lubbock not even an hour ago. So I had to wake up early this morning and drive the five hours back. But I do have some exciting news that I think might cheer you up or at least get you a little bit more awake. Okay, what is it? I'm ready for it. We have hit a thousand followers on Instagram, so I'm very excited for that. I'm not going to lie to you, Ashton. I did not pay very close attention to it because you've handled that for so long now. I really couldn't have told you what we were at. Well, I've been monitoring it just a little bit because I was going to be real excited once we finally hit a thousand. And last week we hit like a thousand and one and I'd been forgetting to tell you about it. And then we went back down. So I was like, well, I'm glad I didn't say anything, but now we're at like a thousand ten. So I'm hoping that we continue on this track of gaining momentum on followers, but thought it was pretty exciting. So I wanted to share that with you live here on the show. That is very exciting. I'm glad you shared it with all of our listeners. Folks, if you're not following us on Instagram, I guess you're missing out. You certainly are, Delaney. But one thing that I am looking out for today, other than our Instagram followers, is some news. And we've been paying some pretty close attention to Brazil as growers are starting their soybean harvest about this time. But unfortunately for the South American country, maybe not so unfortunate for the U.S., harvest is off to the slowest start we've seen in about 10 years. According to Dr. Michael Cordonier, harvest is standing at less than 2% complete. Dr. Cordonier credits the wet, wet weather as the key issue to this slow start. This time last year, harvest was 9% complete, so quite some difference there. Cordonier, probably along with many other market analysts and soybean exporters, predicts the export window for U.S. soybeans to continue to grow. And the question in my mind that kind of rings out is, is the markets going to continue to be more favorable for soybeans? It's still being predicted that Brazil is going to harvest a record soybean crop of about 103 million tons, but it's going to be taking longer than normal for harvesters to actually roll out those beans. It certainly is, Ashton. It certainly is. We've talked about that a little bit on the podcast. We're gonna. It's obviously going to be a discussion that we continue to have um, as we get further into their theoretical harvest. Although at this point, you know. It's pretty slow. So, yeah, that's something I think the markets are going to be chewing on here for quite some time, no doubt. Switching tracks, so just a little bit. Another market that folks are going to have to chew on, as we've talked about in the past episode, you know, a week or two ago, is higher fertilizer prices. We're continuing to see the trend rise for higher fertilizer and urea prices. As of the last week of January here, fertilizer prices were higher for the fourth week in a row for five out of the eight major fertilizer suppliers. And DTN shared this great uh, little chart on an article that 
I caught today, but already 2021 prices are skyrocketing. You know, again, only through the first month here, but the chart is indicating that we're definitely going to surpass prices we saw in 2019, which you'll think back, we've had all the flooding. We had folks that were unable to get what they needed as far as inputs went because a lot of uh, folks were shut down because of all the flooding transportation issues, of course, factored into that as well. And so it appears that we're on a trend to surpass those levels we saw in 2019, uh, if not be similar to where we were. So again, you know, I assume most people at this point in time probably have their fertilizer needs locked in for the spring growing season. But if you don't, you might want to consider doing so. Well, Delaney, I am wanting to talk some more markets, I suppose, kicking things over to ethanol. And luckily for U.S. ethanol producers, a tribunal in Peru has officially ruled in favor of U.S. producers and reversed a 15 cent per gallon duty on American ethanol in Peru last week. And This is about to be a mouthful, so buckle in. The Peruvian National Institute for the Defense of Free Competition and Protection of Intellectual Property Tribunal announced their decision that the U.S. ethanol industry and the U.S. government won their appeal on the countervailing duty case. According to U.S. Grains Council President and CEO Ryan Legrand, Peru is a 40 million gallon market for U.S. ethanol, And so those 15 cents, they start to add up. This decision, of course, allows for the trade relationship between U.S. ethanol producers and Peru to hopefully flourish and remains as another market for our producers. So a great win to note this week. Certainly it is. But Ashton, I'm going to turn our attention to something that may or may not be a market impact. I don't know. It's a little too soon to tell yet, but um been keeping a close eye on this one because like I said, I don't really know how it's going to come across yet in the world marketplace. But we've seen some really violent protests and clashes going on right now in India, more specifically their capital, New Delhi. Over the weekend, we saw things heighten. And we saw a very large group of the country's farmers surround the country's capital, setting up camps and therefore blocking the four major entry and exit points within the city with their tractors to protest some recently enacted farm laws. So as a little background, for decades, the Indian government has guaranteed basically minimum prices for essential crops that the country needs like rice and wheat and has also served as the primary buyer for farmers while also operating their market boards. This new legislation would minimize the Indian government's role in agriculture and open the market to private investors, more of a free marketplace, if you will. And farmers are not very happy about this. They're quick to point out that the government marketing boards were dismantled in their state and that farmers were forced to sell their rice on the open markets at nearly 35% lower than what the government mandated rates were. So of course, they're gonna be losing out on some profit there. And a lot of farmers in the country are not happy about this. And these protests are continuing on this. They've been going on now. I I would say that not necessarily protests, but farmers in some sort of unrest, this pattern has been going on for, I want to say two or three weeks now that at least I've been aware of it. So again, I don't know what kind of market movement this is going to be. India is a very big cotton producing country. So if anything, I could see this taking a 
a toll on our cotton and rice industries, but mainstream industries like corn and soybeans, probably not going to be a huge impact there. Delaney, I'm glad that you brought this up because I've been seeing a lot of update headlines and I don't know that I didn't know the backstory. Now I do. So I'm glad that you educated me and some other listeners as well today. But I just have one other news story that I want to talk about today, and it's concerning China and Russia. Chinese customs have reportedly discovered traces of COVID-19 on 13 cases of Russian poultry products. The cases were from three different regions in Russia, but each are part of the Cherkizovo brand, which is one of the top three industrial pork producers in Russia. Chinese law states that import declarations for all products from these locations will be suspended for four weeks. Russia's food safety watchdog, whose name I'm not even going to try to butcher, I think I've done enough of that today, will also be launching its own investigation into the claims. And I think that this is the first time we're seeing, you know, China say they found COVID-19 from Russian products. So we'll just continue to see, you know, how this investigation goes. But uh, with this, you know, being declared uh, or a, a cease of imports from those locations for, for a month. It sounds like China has got, you know, I guess the hang of it now on how they're going to operate with COVID-19 traces on food packaging. So nothing, you know, completely new, but just one small piece of news to round out our news conversation for today, unless you have something else that you want to talk about, Delaney. Uh, no, nothing really major. I was just going to add, you know, a little more commentary to Secretary Vilsack's Senate confirmation hearing. He has been confirmed in the Senate. It should be a pretty speedy process for him to get confirmed on the Senate floor. Um, But during his Senate confirmation on Tuesday, he did confirm that he wanted to use the USDA's CCC or Commodity Credit Corp spending authority to create an agricultural carbon bank but uh, didn't really explain how that that would work and did say he wanted it to be a market-based tool, having carbon credits, et cetera, letting the market kind of guide that. Um, but it didn't give a lot of clarity. He probably doesn't have an answer yet as to how that would be structured, what that would look like. Um, so I thought that was just an interesting piece as well. You know, this carbon conversation that we continue to have is just one that's not going to go away. I think it's a trend. I think it's something that the marketplace will demand here for years to come. I agree with you there, Delaney. But what do you say we hop over into the markets? Because that's, you know, one thing that we do have the answers for today. We certainly do. And prices are higher again today after we saw a little bit of selling off yesterday. Green across the screen in the grains today as the March corn contract closed up nine cents to close at 5.52. The May up six and three quarters to end of the day at 5.49. In the soybean pits, the March contract up 16 and a half cents to close at 13.71. The March, excuse me, the May up 16 and three quarters to close at 13.67 and a half. And in wheat pits today, Chicago March contract up three and a half to end at six forty eight and a quarter. The May adding five cents to close at six fifty and three quarters. And in livestock mixed trade today, as the live cattle contract February month sold off fifty cents to close at one fifteen forty seven. The April down seven cents to close at one twenty two forty five. In feeders, March lower today sixty cents to end at one thirty eight fifty two. The April shedding forty two and a half cents to close at one forty one eighty two and a half. 
And in lean hogs today, green across the screen as the February contract added 82 and a half cents to close at 72.37. The April up $1.12 to close at 79.20. And rounding out our markets with the class three dairy milk futures. February 14 cents lower today to end at 15.58. The March down 22 to close at 16.03. Now, Ashton, let's turn it over without further ado to our conversation with Covercrest. Well, for today's podcast interview, we are talking to Mike DeCamp, who is the Chief Operating Officer at Covercrest. Mike, thanks so much for coming on today. Thanks, Ashton. Appreciate you guys having me. So, Mike, before we get started talking about Covercrest, which I'm really excited to do, it's kind of a, a timely interview as well. Why don't you give us a little bit of a background story on how you got involved in, you know, the, I guess, plant industry, or I say plant, the the crop industry and your background in agriculture? Sure, sure. So, um, from an education standpoint, I have a accounting and a law degree, but I joined after practicing law in St. Louis for several years, I joined Monsanto Company when the ag business went public. So that would have been back in 1999 and was with Monsanto for over a decade. Um, started in the law department, moved over to corporate strategy. And inside of corporate strategy, we launched a, a uh, business unit called American Seeds and had went out and we were acquiring regional corn and soybean seed companies throughout the Midwest. So that's where I would say where I got my first true education from an ag standpoint. So that would have been in the early 2000s. And after I left Monsanto in 2010 with a colleague, we started a advisory firm and we're doing advisory work for ag businesses, um, M&A and strategic consulting, things of that nature. One of our first clients was a private equity group that was in the process of transitioning from owning farmland and, and looking for ways to vertically integrate on farmland to investing directly in operating businesses. So I, in addition to um, our, our firm supporting that business in its one of its first operating company acquisitions, I made a transition to that private equity group, came in as a partner and chief investment officer and chief financial officer and spent about a decade with that group. Um, and we were invested in vertically integrated production ag businesses and in various spaces. Uh, we had we had things that were as basic as um, corn production that was ultimately going to the protein market uh, as a feed to uh, corn and soybean seed production that we were doing on behalf of as a outsourced ac activity for some of the large multinationals in the space to organic dairy, to table grape production, to potato production. So very vast array of um, production ag businesses. And then I left that, I sold my partnership interest back in 2018 and had an opportunity to just really take some time to myself and was doing some consulting work with some institutional investors that had interest in the ag space. And, and as, as things would just so happen, Covercrest was evolving from a focus truly on R&D into the commercial space. So I was recruited to join Covercrest, started having the conversations in um, 2019 and then joined right in the middle of the pandemic and in, in uh, earlier this past March in connection with uh, the last fundraising that that Covercrest completed. 
So let's get into it a little bit more here, Mike, to talk about what Covercrest does. It sounds like you started at an exciting and interesting time, to say the least. But give us the 10,000-foot view about what Covercrest is. Yeah, so Covercrest, we're, we're taking a, a native species called Pennycrest, and we, we're converting that, that, that crop. That It's really a winter annual weed. And we're converting that through breeding and gene editing into what we call Covercrest. So Covercrest is designed, it's an oil seed and it has a very low carbon intensity profile. So our ultimate goal is to be able to provide farmers with an opportunity to have a, a new crop in the Midwest rotation, a crop that fits between corn and soybeans. It grows over the winter when land might otherwise be sitting fallow. And in addition to providing the same type of opportunity that they would have with corn and soybeans in terms of having a marketable crop. We also provide the benefits that come along with a traditional cover crop in terms of really the soil health that, uh, that you would associate with cover crops. And so we're focused, um, we're building our customer relationships with downstream user, users. Um, our initial market and focus is going to be selling our grain to, uh, uh, as feed for, it'll go in as an inclusion in the feed ration for chicken production, broiler production. And as we continue to scale our acres, we'll then move into a crush process where we'll be crushing cover crests and extracting the oil for purposes of the target market being renewable fuels, renewable diesel, renewable jet aviation fuel. And then we have a very high protein um, product in the meal that would be perfectly situated for, for livestock. So very similar to, you know, what some of your listeners might associate with, with canola um, in terms of its, its two main markets going to oil and feed with the meal. So just to clarify, this is a new variety of crop. This isn't something that most people are, or is this something that people would be or potentially could be growing at home? Or is this something that you guys have genetically engineered that's different from canola or, any other oil seed out there? Yeah, so this is a brand new crop. Um, again, the native species people will know it is field pennycress. So we've taken mm -hmm. field pennycress, and similar to if you think about the history of canola, starting with oil rapeseed, and then the modifications that were made to oil rapeseed to get to the oil and protein content that is marketed today, as we know it as canola. And so yeah, so this is no one's had any experience growing this as a crop. Um, we've been doing our R&D efforts now for almost nine years. Um, started with a large bank of native pennycrest germplasm that we collected, um, initially using traditional breeding techniques and looking for the progeny that had the best yield and maturity available. And then we brought in a gene editing program, a little bit different than I would say genetic engineering, but a gene editing program, not, not a gene modification, not GMO gene editing program to help work on the compositional factors in the, in the product. So pennycress, the native crop is a brassica. Um, and like most brassicas, if you think of mustards or garlic or broccoli, things like that, you, we all know they all have very intense flavor profiles and smell profiles. So part of what we're doing to make our crop fit well for feed purposes is we've We've modified it to have a lower fiber content, which helps with digestibility for animals. 
Um, we've removed the uric acid, which again helps for purposes of uh, having a product that can work well as a livestock feed. And then the third component, which is really where the where these um, strong taste profiles, strong smell profiles come into play is the glucosinolates. And in our case, the glucosinolate we have in our brassica is Sinegran. And so if, we, if you and I were all together, if we were all together and we were to smell the Covercrest seed, it would have a, have a garlicky smell to it. And so we're working now, we've successfully completed the first two, low fiber and low urusic, and we're working now on this next generation of traits to remove the glucosinolates, which then put us in a great spot for these markets that I mentioned earlier. So Mike, I kind of have a, a two-parter here. And you know, the first part being, is this available right now to producers? Is it currently on the market? And the second half of that is, if it is on the market, what are you hearing back from the industry about Covercrest? Yeah. Good questions. We're, we're not on the market right now. We are, um, we will have our first commercial launch, which will be a very small scale commercial launch later this fall. So, you know, we're counter cyclical to the, to the cycles for corn and soybeans. So we harvest in the spring and plant in the fall, right? The exact opposite. So we'll be, we have, um, we have our largest crop in the ground right now, a little over, just to give everybody a sense of scale, a little over a hundred acres and that that those acres represent our research work that we're doing, our, our 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 trial work that we're doing, as well as our seed multiplication that we're doing right now to have the seed ready to plant in the fall. Um, we're targeting a little over thousand acres, somewhere between a thousand and two thousand acres that we'll do this launch on. That'll be part then of a. Uh, uh, of a program that will have a stream customer to deliver grain in a whole form that'll go into a feed ration for chickens. And then at the same time in the fall 2021, we'll be planting and doing our seed production for our 2022 crop, which will be our full commercial launch. And we're targeting around 50,000 acres in, in 2022. And one of the things I'll send to you both after, after we're done here, we just this week launched a, five-minute video that explains, does a really wonderful job of explaining what Covercrest is, how it works, and what the opportunity is for the farmer. And, and the purpose of that is to start to get that out to growers in our initial launch area, which will be South Central Illinois, so that they can have a chance to follow us, so that we're going to have field visits throughout the spring as we go to harvest this year. And then an opportunity for them to follow the crop for a full cycle for the 21-22 season. And then that'll be part of that's part of our overall marketing efforts to get to that acre target we have for 2022. And in looking for that acre target, I was searching through your website. You've got something called the Founding Farmers Club, which I assume is how you're going to get to that number. Will you tell us a little bit more about that if we've got farmers that are interested in Sure. Being part of your focus group or your test launch, if you will. Yeah, yeah. So we have a group. You can imagine, just even with the, all the field research work that we've done over the years, over the last nine years, we have a group of cooperators, farmers that we've been working with and using their land, and that are big advocates of um, kind of the sustainability move in farming. So they're folks that are really on the cutting edge of soil health and cover crops and 
biologicals, things of that nature. So they're part of that founding farmers. And, and what we've been able to do in connection with that is, is we've met a lot of farmers along the way that they've, they've introduced us to as well. So that's, that's really our initial group of founding farmers. And we're, we're hoping to build that group out with this latest marketing effort um, with the video that we're that I'd mentioned just a minute ago. Well, Mike, as we look to the future here, where can our audience get in contact with you or follow along with Covercrest as y'all begin to, you know, get ready for, for your launch to the market? Yeah, really look, the, the best place is um, um, www.covercrest.com. That's our website. And, you know, I, um, this video is a great way, contains a lot of information and links on how growers that have an interest in learning more, not only to learn more through the video, but an opportunity, like I said, for field visits this spring as we get ready for harvest. So that'll be a great opportunity. And, you know, there's contact information then there at the website for folks to reach out to us and get more information. Well, Mike, we here at Ag News Daily wish you and the rest of the team at Covercrest good luck with your future endeavors. And thanks again for coming on the podcast today. Yeah, thank you, Ashton and Delaney, for having me. I really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks again there to Michael DeCamp of Covercrest for coming on the podcast and talking to us. I think these innovations in, you know, plant breeding, plant genetics, whatever you want to call it, is certainly an interesting one. And good luck to Covercrest on their launch here in the future. Absolutely. Good luck to them, Ashton. I don't have a good segue into that, folks. But uh, if you want to catch up on any of the past episodes or, again, our 1001 Instagram follower. You can find us on social media at Ag News Daily on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Ashton, with that, should we let the people go? Let's let them go.